opening up the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 18. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitionary through it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if it was transitory, came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed in his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Hey, if we have not met yet, my name is Gerald. I'm one of the pastors and elders around here, and it is an absolute joy to be part of this family. And uh, today, my wife and I are actually celebrating 25 years of marriage. And it's confusing, it's confusing to some because you're like, wait, Jenny looks like she's 25. I know. But in a moment of honesty, this last summer, Jenny said with a bit of hyperbole, man, the first half of our marriage was really not great. It was hyperbole. And then she said, but the second half has been amazing. To which I said, I think we're trending in the right direction. It's the, the V, you know, we hit and now we're up and to the right. But you know, uh, something I've reflected on is a big part of the second half of our marriage has been being part of this family. And the church and this church is not about a platform, a podcast, an image, a website, or books to be sold. This church is a family. And I know that a big part of the past 14 years of being part of this family is that Jenny and I and our kids have been deeply shaped by being in relationship to you. There are individuals in this family, in this room, um, who have shaped our life, our marriage, our kids profoundly. So I say thank you, and again, it's just an absolute honor to be part of this family with you on this journey and sharing a little bit from my heart with you and from the Word this morning. But let's begin with prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We honor you, we love you, we thank you, God, 
Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Even as we just saying, you have been faithful. And God, as we recount your faithfulness, may we look forward into the next year with faith. So would you come now, Spirit of the living God, and work and speak and heal and transform us even now. Amen. Blaise Pascal, that famous French philosopher and mathematician, famously said in the 1600s, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And it turns out, according to a recent study at the University of Virginia, that 400 years later, that is still true. I found this fascinating study I want to share with you guys. It started with college students and some researchers, and the ask of the college students was, would you join this experiment where you sit in a room with nothing except a chair, yourself, and your thoughts for 6 to 15 minutes? The students said yes, and it was considered a thinking period, 6 to 15-minute thinking period. And you may not be surprised, but when interviewed after that thinking period, most of the participants said it was not enjoyable. So then the researchers said, okay, well, maybe that's about an age group, college students. Let's expand it. So they found diverse people and diverse ages all the way up to 77 years old, and they had them do the exact same experiment and got the exact same results. So then they took it even further. The researchers thought that because the participants would rather have something to do than nothing to do, would the participants actually prefer an unpleasant activity than no activity at all. So in the last stage of the experiment, the participants were given the same circumstances as the previous two groups, but with the added option, this is real, people, and this is science, the added option of administering a mild electric shock to themselves (laughs) by pressing a button. And in case you're thinking, oh, the shock probably really wasn't that bad, all of the participants received the sample shock prior to their thinking period, and they all reported that they would rather pay money than receive the shock again. Then, when they were in that thinking period, 66% of the men, 25% of the women, well done ladies, gave themselves the electric shock. Here's what the researchers wisely concluded. What is striking is that simply being alone with our own thoughts for 15 minutes was apparently so averse that it drove most participants to self-administer an electric shock they had earlier said they would pay money to avoid. So, for most people, being alone in a room with just their thoughts is so painful they would rather have any other sensation than that thinking period. Now, I don't know about you, but this actually makes me feel a little bit better about myself. I am a people person. I'm an extrovert. I love being with people. I want to be with people. I've never had a season of my life where I've lived alone or have even enjoyed being alone. Honestly, being alone for me has always felt like pain. And I don't know if my parents remember this, but as a kid, my parents are here today, and as a kid, I remember being sent to the opposite end of our house before bedtime to brush my teeth. And I would go in the bathroom, I would load up the toothbrush, I would start brushing and then go back down the hall to where my parents were in the living room. And then they would send me back, but I just didn't 
want to be alone. And, you know, I remember when our kids were little and the excitement of, you know, I'd be up in the morning early and I'd be reading, drinking coffee or whatever, and then I'd hear the little pitter-patter of feet coming down the hallway. And I was always so excited to see who was it, like who's up first, and, you know, like to see my kiddos. And things have changed a little bit in our household. My daughter Miriam's home from college, our youngest, and, you know, the first couple days of Christmas break this past week, I was so excited for her to wake up. And I was waiting. <laughs> 8 a.m. Look down the hallway, door shut. 9 a.m. 10 a.m. It's like 10.30. She comes out. And sadly, she came out to get a book and then just to go back to her bed. <laughs> but in a moment of confession, I asked her if I could share this. She said, Dad, remember that scene from the Willy Wonka movie, the real one with Johnny Depp, when all of the... <laughs> I didn't even need to say that. You already were thinking that. But remember the scene when the whole family's crammed in that one tiny little bed? Do you guys remember that? Miriam was like, Dad, that's basically me the week between Christmas and New Year's. And I was like, yeah, that is actually accurate. That's what you've been doing. But anyways, I, like some of you, don't like being alone. I never have. Yet... As I look at the rich history of our Christian tradition, it's undeniable that solitude, being alone, and its companion, silence, these have been core practices of followers of Jesus over the centuries. But we live in a culture that has, for the most part, a disdain for silence and solitude. Our culture, our lifestyle, even often our church gatherings are fast-paced, full, and noisy. We've become accustomed to background noise. We can go easily in a day from a podcast to a playlist to a news broadcast. We work out with earbuds in, background music playing while we work, and some of us even fall asleep with an app that literally is called white noise. And that's just the exterior noise not to mention the internal noise going on in our heads. You know, Car Cardinal Robert Seurat from West Africa gives great commentary on our noisy Western culture when he says, today in a highly technological, busy world, how can we find silence? Noise wearies us, and we get the feeling that silence has become an unreachable oasis. And I don't know about you, but that resonates with me as true. Now, exterior silence is turning off the noise around us, like turning off your phone, putting it in another room to try and pray, or being in the car and turning off the radio, driving in silence. And that's easier to control. But interior silence is much more elusive. Because I can be sitting, like the participants in that study at UVA, I can be sitting in a room that's got exterior silence, but I still have a cacophony of noise inside my head. But the longer you follow Jesus, and the more you read of the spiritual greats of our tradition, the more you hear about the importance of interior silence. I keep hearing from different sources the same idea. God mainly speaks 
and silence. And if that's true, I decided this past year, I don't want to miss out. So this past year, I decided to dive into this practice of silent prayer. I sensed there was an invitation from Jesus to me and that it was out there waiting where I did not want to go into the silence. And now, I've found great joy there. But listen, there are so many different practices of Jesus and so many different seasons to experiment with them. And God has made each one of us, thankfully, very different. And we are different, and there's diverse practices to help us to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what he did. So this one that I'm going to talk about today, silent prayer, is just merely one of those practices. And perhaps you're enjoying it, perhaps you don't want to enjoy it at all, or perhaps uh, this may be an invitation in this year for something for you to try. So I started this. I started the practice of beginning my day with silent prayer, contemplative prayer, starting a few minutes, and then working my way up to more. And it has been an absolute surprise and gift to me. I have found silent contemplative prayer life-giving and something that often as I'm going to bed at night, I'm anticipating joyfully for the morning to come. It's like finding an ancient well. I feel like I've unearthed something that's been there for a long time, but that was previously unknown to me. And so again, if this is an invitation for you, perhaps come and drink. If not, just know that it's there. Everything that we share here is always by way of invitation. We're merely submitting this to you to discern the Spirit of God what the next step is for you. But really, this has been extremely surprising. I never thought I would be the kind of person who enjoyed being alone and who enjoys interior silence. And it's funny because the more I press into being alone, the more I've learned that I never am truly alone. Now, Our founding pastor and good friend, John Mark, recently wrote this. He said there's four types of prayer. Talking to God, which is like written prayers, uh, reciting the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps you pray through the Psalms. That's talking to God, which is super helpful. It's part of our liturgy here on Sundays. It's helpful if you're tired at night or in the morning and you don't know what to pray. Talking to God, written prayers are really helpful. But then there's talking with God. Talking with God about your life. Gratitude. Lament, intercession. There's listening to God, and you listen to hear God's voice through scripture, through listening prayer, through the prophetic. And then the final type of prayer, he says, is being with God. This is the type of prayer where you're just sitting silently in God's presence. Contemplative prayer. And this is the type of prayer we're going to talk about today. Being with God in silent prayer. Now, I've been practicing centering prayer, which is a type of prayer that leads to contemplation. And here are the basic steps, just to give you kind of a mental uh, map of what I'm talking about. Here's the basic steps of centering prayer. And you can look this up later. There's an app. There's a ton on the internet. There's books. But here's the basics of centering prayer. You ready? Some of you guys are like, this is not what I was hoping for today. It's going to be good. (laughs) Step one, choose a sacred word that helps you focus on God in prayer. This is not a practice of emptying your mind, but rather focusing your mind. 
So you pick a word to help your mind focus. It could be Jesus, Father, Spirit. And then number two, you practice focusing your thoughts by praying this one word. Jesus. Jesus. That's it. And then anytime you find yourself thinking of some other thoughts, what am I going to do for lunch? I got to talk to my parents about that thing. You gently place your awareness back on that word. That's it. That's the whole practice. It's choosing to set your attention back on God over and over for a few minutes and then perhaps even longer. Now, there's a famous story that illustrates what this is like about a disciple of Jesus who went on a silent retreat, and he's checking in with the director there at the monastery, and the director's kind of helping him, guiding him through this um, day of silent retreat. And uh, the directee goes out for 20 minutes of silent contemplation. Comes back in, and the director says, hey, how was it? And he goes, it's horrible. In 20 minutes, I probably lost my train of thought over 100 times. And the director says, so you're meaning to say that you returned to Jesus over 100 times already today? You directed over 100 times, you decided to make Jesus the focus of your thoughts over 100 times already today. How honored Jesus must be. So saints for centuries have practiced this type of prayer, called it centering prayer, abiding prayer, beholding prayer, contemplative prayer, all different names for basically similar silent prayer. And this is not some woo-woo, you know, Eastern mystic thing. This comes actually straight out of the scriptures and out of our tradition. See, in Eastern uh, uh, meditation, the goal is to empty your mind. But with Christian contemplation, the goal is to fill your mind, focusing it on Jesus, which leads us to our text for today. So if you have your Bible open, uh, look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Now, the first thing you'll notice in the text is Paul is using a compare-contrast from the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant through Moses and, and to Israel, and the New Covenant that we have in Jesus. Verse 8, look down at your Bible, it says, Will not the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, even be more glorious? So notice, he's comparing and contrasting, and he's showing over and over again that the new covenant, what we have now in Christ, is so much better than the old covenant. So verse 8, he says, won't it be even more glorious? Verse 9, if the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, that's the old covenant, How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? That's the new covenant. Verse 10, for what was glorious, the old covenant, has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory of the new covenant. Verse 11, and what was transitory, old covenant, came with glory. How much greater is the glory of that which lasts, this new covenant? So Paul wants the church to know and wants us to know today that the new covenant is clearly far supreme to the old covenant that Moses had. There was certainly glory in the first covenant, but there was also distance. If you remember, Moses was the mediator of that covenant to Israel, and Moses, when he was close to God's presence in the tabernacle, his face literally shone. You remember that? Do you guys remember that? 
If not, go back, read Exodus. Okay, his face would shine, but then the further he got away from the glory, his face would fade, and he was, like, embarrassed. So he, like, kept it covered so they wouldn't know that the glory was fading. He had to keep returning to the hot spot to get the glow. But now, in the new covenant, the white-hot presence of God is not in a temple that we go visit. It's in every believer in Jesus. This is the new covenant. There is no longer a distance between God and man. The two have become one. So Moses' glory was fading, but in contrast to that, the glory that we have, Paul says in this passage, is increasing. That's crazy. He needed to keep going back to the hot spot, but now it's within you. So the ministry of the Spirit in the new covenant is much much better, which leads us to verse 18, which is our key passage. Look down with me, verse 18. And now, Paul says, we all, meaning all who are in Christ by faith, who with unveiled faces contemplate. The the Greek word there is katoprizo, do not say it. I don't know why preachers always make you say the Greek word after they say it. Don't say it. I said it already. (laughs) The word is contemplate which means to gaze or to behold. So look back at the text. Now all of us with unveiled faces contemplate, we gaze, we behold the Lord's glory and are being transformed. And this is another great great Greek word. Do not say it. You can read it. Metamorpho, which sounds like metamorphosis, which means change. So when we behold God's glory in Jesus, we are metamorpho, we are changed. We are transformed into what? Into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, a couple things I want to highlight here. There's a lot. First, the veil is removed, meaning we now have direct access to God. The cross of Jesus has removed all barriers. There is no separation. We don't need a priest to go for us. We don't need Moses as an intermediary. We have direct access. And let me just say this to all of you, but especially to some of you. This is not contingent on anything you have done or not done. This is 100% what Jesus has done for you. I don't care what you did last night, last week, or last year. This is available to you, but you have to choose it. We choose to draw close to the Father. The access is there. The question is, do you want it? Secondly, we can behold Jesus' glory. We can actually gaze on Jesus. We behold him in our thoughts in places like prayer and worship. And number three, the result of that is we are transformed with an ever-increasing glory. And get this. Not only are those in Christ, anyone who believes, able to behold God's glory, but we also now become his glory. Think about that for a minute. The veil has been removed. We can see the glory of Christ. But then in some crazy transformative interaction, not only do we see the glory of God, we become his glory. We are being changed with ever-increasing glory. And finally, note this. Who does this transforming is in us? The scripture says it comes from the Lord 
who is the Spirit. And that, friends, is why we prioritize presence and encounter. When you encounter the presence of the Holy Spirit, you are changed. And some of you may not feel that. You may not see that. But it is happening. As you draw close to the Lord, in times of quiet by yourself in the morning, in times of driving in your car and worship and turning your car into David's tabernacle, in times of encounter when we respond and pray for one another, here you are encountering the presence of God, and where the presence of God is, there is transformation. We know this and have said this for years here, but do not forget, whatever you behold, you become. Think about it. If you're constantly looking at the news, you're doom scrolling, what kind of person will you become? Probably a little bit afraid and angry. If you're constantly looking at other people's perfect lives, their perfectly airbrushed, filtered lives on social media, what kind of person will you become? Probably jealous, insecure, mildly depressed. If you're constantly looking at TikTok videos, what kind of person will you become? The answer is no one knows because it's an <laughs> experiment on an entire generation. And for that, I'm deeply concerned. <laughs> what you look at, who you spend time with in real life or online, shapes who you are becoming. Just as the scripture says, whoever walks with the wise will become wise. So when you practice regularly being in Jesus' presence, you will become like Jesus. And for some of you, that may be the invitation for this new year. To resolve, to decide, as Gavin said earlier, to be with Jesus. Consider if that's for you. But I just want to share really briefly, and then we want to get to the good part, which is when we say, come Holy Spirit, and I can't wait for that. But before that, just three benefits I have experienced in this past year through uh, practicing contemplative prayer. Gavin said earlier, he's like, yeah, I feel like today's kind of like a fireside chat with Gerald the elder. He actually said, with grandpa, and I'm like, dude, no. <laughs> Unless there's something I don't know, that is not accurate and I did not appreciate that. <laughs> but I like the idea of the, like the family fireside chat. So here it is, three things I've discovered through the practice of contemplative prayer. The first thing I've discovered is divine therapy. As you wait in silence, stuff comes up. If you've tried any kind of solitude or silence, you'll know this. When you wait, inner thoughts, feelings, fears, anxieties, hopes, dreams, things that you want to keep, at least as in Enneagram 7, I want to keep locked away in a deep, dark, faraway place. The longer you wait, the more undeniable those thoughts and feelings and anxieties and fears are. This is probably what the people in that experiment at the University of Virginia did not like. They're like, six minutes, they're like, I'm feeling, I don't like it. Let me buzz myself. Um, but this is not a bad thing. This is actually the work. This is the process. So you simply, all you do as those things arise, you turn them over and over again to God. You simply... As it comes up in, a, in an act of confession, or sometimes it's like there's micro acts of confession over and over and over, and 
Sometimes it's an act of surrender, turning it over and over and over. You do that, and then you come back to Jesus. I've had this image in my mind of sitting on a bank of a river, and as the river's passing by, I'm just waiting in Jesus' presence. He's there with me, and then thoughts come, and then like I take the thought, and I place it like in a paper boat in the river and let it go. And sometimes that's all I do for 15 to 20 minutes <laughs> just keep doing that. But what I'm realizing that in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of pure love, I can bring him anything. I can give any thought I'm having, any fear to him, and he receives it in his love over and over and over again. Oftentimes, as Jesus, I'm worrying about this again. I give it to you. Jesus, I don't know why I keep thinking about this person. I turn them over to you. That meeting that's coming up later today, Jesus, here it is. Put it in the boat, floats away, back to Jesus. Non-judgmentally turning every thought over to him. Fear, jealousy, everything. And then just returning my gaze to him. Always returning, Jesus. What about the Jesus? <laughs> Jesus. And I do not understand, but like that passage we just looked at, as you do that, as you continue to bring your gaze back to Jesus, you begin to be changed. You begin to experience God's unconditional love in the midst of your honesty and your feelings. Hiding nothing, turning everything over to him. And listen, friends, it's experiencing God's love in spaces like that that changes us. It's not just concepts of God's love or right theology, as important as that is. But I'm learning that the process of doing this in God's presence it's changing me, and it's healing me. Psychologist and spiritual director David Benner reflects on this transformative process, and he says this, meditating on God's love has done more to increase my love than decades of effort to try to be more loving. Allowing myself to deeply experience his love, taking time to soak in it, and allowing it to infuse me has begun to affect changes that I had given up hope of ever experiencing. Coming back to God and my failures at love, throwing myself into his arms and asking him to remind me of how much he loves me as I am. Here, I begin to experience new levels of love to give to others. And this is what happens in contemplative prayer. Morning by morning, day after day, week after week, sitting with God in the quiet, allowing the things to surface, acknowledging the truth of how I feel, what I desire, where I failed, handling them over to him. And I discover that in his presence, I'm changed. And perhaps in this new year, God's inviting you into that. We all need spaces like this. Maybe for you, it's another space like inner healing prayer or therapy or being more transparent with your Bridgetown community or with a safe friend. I don't know what it is for you, but we need spaces where we can be honest, where we can be accepted, and where we can experience healing.
God's presence is divine therapy. The second thing I've discovered this year in practicing contemplative prayer is better thinking. I bet you didn't see that coming. The sciencey word for it is metacognition, which is basically the practice of intentionally thinking about what you're thinking about. Is that amazing we can do that? I think that's pretty cool. Centering prayer is literally the practice of directing your thoughts where you want them to go. It's becoming aware of your thoughts and then focusing them on Jesus. And this is not just about good mental hygiene. This is our inheritance in Christ Jesus. We have been given the mind of Christ. We don't have to have our thoughts running this way and that way out of control. God has given you a sound mind, and we need to learn how to access it and to walk in that. And this is one of the ways that you can. This is one way that you can train yourself into that. And by the way, this is exactly what Scripture tells us to do. Think about places where Paul says, we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Or Philippians 4.8, that beautiful verse. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything, what is this? He's basically giving qualifiers about what to think about. If anything is excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. We choose, as followers of Jesus, to think better thoughts. And by the way, who is the most true, most lovely, most pure, most admirable, most excellent, most praiseworthy being in the universe? Jesus. So to obey what Scripture is telling us, we focus our thoughts on Jesus. And by the way, notice these are not suggestions, but these are New Testament commands. Family, let me encourage you. This is who we are. This is what we do. And contemplative prayer is a great space where you can train for this with your thoughts. And now here's Willard on this, because what would this be a teaching without Dallas Willard? <laughs> the first and most basic thing we can and must do is keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. Now, in the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged, do you think, by the burdensome habit of dwelling on things lesser than God. For sure, Dallas. But, he says, these are habits. These are not the law of gravity and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former one as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. This is the goal, family, to train ourselves so that our thoughts constantly go back to God in prayer all day long. And I found that after practicing this for extended times in the morning, that then it becomes easier later in the day to do. And then as Dallas Willard describes, you'll find yourself in down times turning your mind back to the simple prayer, Jesus. You hear some bad news, you're in a conversation and someone's saying something that's negative that makes you feel a certain way, Jesus. 
Jesus. You find yourself going down a path of negative thinking, following a path, an old rut of temptation in your thoughts. Jesus. Jesus. You need help in a situation. The shortest prayer ever is Jesus. (laughs) It's practicing intentionally that also helps us become less reactive. Slower to speak. Slower to become angry. You practice feeling things, thinking things, coming and pausing before you respond. And man, in just a few, any married person knows this, in just a pause of a few simple seconds, you can change your destiny. (laughs) (laughs) I am a total novice at this. I'm just merely pointing you to the well and saying there's water. So how about you? How would you like your thoughts to be different in this year? Would you like your thoughts to be filled with more of Jesus and his love, his joy, his peace? Perhaps this is an invitation today for you. Just a starting place to start training. The third thing that I've been learning is the illusion of separation. This is interesting. David says famously in Psalm 139, Lord, where can I go from your spirit? I go to the highest heights, heavens, you're there. I go to the lowest depths, you're there. And then Paul, seemingly reflecting on that in Romans 8, says there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There's no principality or power. There's no angel. There's no demon. Not even yourself. That's interesting. You can't even separate yourself from God's love. But the question, as I began to ponder this, is, but where and how do I experience this? this promise of God's presence. And I've noticed that when I slow down in silence and contemplative prayer, I can experience more of this union. This is one way that we, in our will, draw near relationally to Jesus. In silent prayer, I'm beginning to realize that union with God isn't something that needs to be acquired, but only realized. Martin Laird brilliantly says this, God does not know how to be absent. The fact that most of us experience throughout most of our lives a sense of absence or of distance from God is the great illusion that we're caught up in. It's the human experience. The sense of separation from God is real, the sense, but the meaning of silence reveals that this perceived separation does not have the last word. The illusion of separation is generated by the mind and is sustained by the riveting of our attention to the interior soap opera, the constant chatter of the cocktail party going on in our heads. For most of us, this is what normal is. And we're good at coming up with ways of coping with this perceived perception, he adds. Our consumer-driven entertainment culture takes care of much of that, true. But the grace of salvation... The grace of Christian wholeness that flowers in silence dispels the illusion of separation. For when the mind is brought to stillness and all our strategies of acquisition have dropped, a deeper truth presents itself that we are actually one with God. Now, what our text today was celebrating is that we no longer need to go to a 
place. We don't have to go to the tabernacle to encounter God. God's locale, his presence is in you. And maybe we just need to slow down and draw near to realize that. This is what Jesus was talking about to his disciples when he said things like in John 14, 20, on that day you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Or in John 15, famously, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches. You remain in me and I in you. Or think of Paul's famous words in Galatians 2.20 where he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. Meaning, Paul looks within himself and doesn't see Paul, but sees Christ. And we need spaces and practices to experience this, to live into it. And the contemplative silent prayer is one of those spaces where we can slow down, behold Jesus, experience who he is, Emmanuel, God with us. So to wrap things up, just one final thought. You know, we see from the life of Jesus and the saints throughout our tradition that silence and solitude not only leads to inward transformation, but also sends us outward as transformed people into Jesus' kingdom mission and justice. There's a natural progression from beholding God to then being able to behold others. Isn't that interesting? The more you sit and look at God, the more you see God's image in others. And you could sum up this movement like this. Being with God leads to becoming like God and then doing what he did. From silence, we emerge like Jesus out of the wilderness, up all night in prayer, filled with the love of God, empowered by the spirit of God, and committed to sacrificial service to others. Bishop Seurat, one more time, the Cardinal Seurat says, the true revolution comes out of silence. Think about that. Creative thoughts, new thoughts for how we can engage justice and work for the poor and work for God's kingdom mission, true freedom to love others. It comes out of silence. It leads us toward God, toward others, so as to place ourselves then humbly and generously at their service. Like breathing, we inhale God's presence in silent prayer. And then we exhale justice and care for others. May we be people of his presence and people of his mission. 